Hey, hey, welcome, Disability Law Show. So good to be back with you and my good pal and yours as well, Tamara Gobian, partner, Sam Firu, Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. Uh, Tamara's always available. She's got a great team, best across the country. You can reach out and discuss your matter in private. If you're dealing with uh, a long-term disability insurer, maybe you've been told you've been cut off, maybe you were never approved in the first place, or they said, hey, you can appeal for the 50th time. It won't go anywhere, but feel free to do so. These are all avenues you don't want to go down alone without the proper advice and education so reach out anytime uh, when we're not doing the show of course tomorrow is easy to get a hold of one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca and another website you can use to ask questions freely and anonymously would be uh, mydisabilityquestions.com so we've got a ton of emails coming in already and other assorted questions tomorrow but we always start off with a, a situation no matter you've been uh, you've been working on what do you got for us well, look, John, I've been, of course, looking at the news like everybody else and mm-hmm. seeing all these long wait times at uh, hospitals oh and other things. Yeah. And and it was reminiscent of a conversation I had with a woman this week uh, about her disability claim. And she described uh, basically, you know, this problem of getting proper mental health treatment and diagnoses and what how that had a negative impact on her actually getting her disability claim approved and the continuity of her benefits. And we talk about this a little bit more generally on the show uh, about how the disability benefit policy has a provision in it that says not only do you have to meet the test of total disability, in other words, you know, you're, you've got to demonstrate that your health prevents you from working, but there's also this additional requirement either tied to the disability uh, definition in the policy or somewhere, you know, buried in the long-term disability language that says right. we will only be paying you disability benefits if you're getting, quote-unquote, appropriate treatment or care from a physician or, a, you know, a registered therapist as it relates to your health. And that is the only way we're going to release benefits is if we deem that you are satisfying this part of the policy as well. And so when you put these two concepts together, the idea that access to treatment has been really, really challenging for people for the last number of years, mm-hmm. we are still, I think, in somewhat in a state of crisis as it relates to accessing even mental health supports, let alone just getting into to an ER to deal with you know all the other things that are going on. And then you couple that with what the disability insurer might be looking for by way of medical support to continue releasing those benefits. And you you create a perfect storm, John. And so it was clear to me when I was speaking with this woman that she was, you know, really in in a crisis of sorts. She really needed the kind of support that I know is available out there, but just was just exasperated and didn't know where to turn. Anyway, I, I don't want to get too much into the legalities of it, but it really made me think about the advice that I gave her in part was you need to advocate for your health. I can't say this enough. And it, it seems counterintuitive, um, you know, and, and maybe people are thinking, oh, this is why I'm going to hire a lawyer. You're going to advocate for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. I have no qualms about doing that. But this is a little bit different. Me advocating with your disability insurer is one thing and I'm more than happy to do it. But an individual advocating for themselves to access the types of treatment that they need with their family doctor or other treatment providers, that's a whole other thing. And it's something that, you know, I try not to get involved between patients and their doctors. I think the men and women and people who are in our medical field are doing a phenomenal job given what they've had to deal with the last number of years. 
But at the end of the day, I think that it is incumbent on you as disability claimant to try and have a deep discussion with anyone who's part of your medical care to say, look, you need to make this referral or I need to access this treatment or I can't afford this particular medication. Can you put me on one of these um, medication drug plans that will support and fund some of these uh, more expensive uh, medications that are available? Just any kind of resource that you can think of but the starting point really is getting that endorsement from the family doctor or other medical practitioner. And I think the tendency really is from a lot of these um, you know, medical individuals that, that we deal with peripherally, but that our individuals are dealing with regularly, they just haven't dealt with disability insurance before, right? They, they, they've never looked at these forms before. They're not really even sure what the disability insurer is looking for let alone the follow-ups that the disability insurer might be sending to their offices, you know, give us another medical report, give us this, give us that. And it can be overwhelming in the context of everything else that's going on. And so if you as disability claimant are not front and center of navigating those waters and making sure that people are the right people are paying attention to what's happening for you from a health perspective, then it just makes the whole picture that much more difficult. It makes it too easy, John, for the insurance company to use the appropriate treatment clause as a sword as opposed to a shield, right? They use it as a means to decline legitimate, you know, claims, legitimate disability claims because they're going to assert, look, you're not getting the right treatment for for your health conditions, ignoring, wrongly might I add, the fact that we are still having a lot of trouble in this province, getting people to see the right medical practitioners and getting the health care that they need. So I thought I would start off talking about it on the show because I am seeing it every day on the news. I am seeing these troubles and I am speaking with lots of people who are meeting, are being met with these barriers. And the last thing I want to see is that there's yet another barrier being the insurance company aspect of it that I can absolutely help you with. But if you're listening to our show and this is resonating with you at all whatsoever, look, just do what you can. Just have a discussion with whoever's in your bubble in terms of your your practitioners and just help them to understand, look, I need your help so that I can get my benefits paid so that I'm not in a financial situation that I, I don't have income coming in and also having to deal with a variety of health issues on top of everything else. Is there a chance that after the insurance company plays that card on you, will they throw the card of, well, in that case, you better come for a, you know, an IME and a medical assessment by our people to see what the appropriate treatment would be before we go any further? Would they play that one on you too? More stress? They might. They might, John. And so, you know, John, what you're talking about and referencing is is the toolkit, I suppose, for yeah. these adjusters, right? They have a variety of things that they can do um, available to them to quote unquote, better understand your disability claim, right? That's what they're going to say to you. They're going to say, well, we don't have a very good understanding of your disability claim. So we want you assessed by one of our people. And that can come in a couple of different forms. It could be an assessment so they could set up a treatment plan and say to you, look, but we have these great treatment providers, so you should go and see our treatment providers, but we need to have you assessed first to make that assessment (laughs) and understand that. Uh, That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is they might send you to an expert, actually, like just a doctor or some kind of specialist to do an independent medical examination. It's not independent, folks. Okay, it's not. (laughs) The insurance company's paying for it. So it's, you know, there's an inherent bias there. But what that does is they ask the doctor, you know, three or four very specific questions. The doctor will, you know, spend some time with you assessing your condition 
And then they'll write a report, usually like a nine, 10 page report talking about the assessment and what you described as your health issues, the whole history of it, and then their own views specifically addressing these questions to the insurance company. And why those questions are important is because inevitably one or two of them will deal with, can this person work? And of course, the large, vast majority of these examinations, these independent medical examinations will come down on the fit side of the insurance company saying, yeah, this person can work. So you know, it, it creates this additional element of, look, we're just trying to better understand your your claim. But really what it's doing is that it's allowing the insurance company to facilitate potentially bringing your disability benefit claim to an end. So now you've got not only the quagmire of having to access treatments on your end and ha- and being and trying to do that and advocating for your health to do that, but on top of everything else, you're now going to tap the shoulder of your doctor or whoever else is in your team to try and respond to what the insurance company yeah. has said or what they've concluded. So look, you know, it's not an easy situation, John. This is why we're here. This is why we do the work that we do every single day. This is why we want to get information out there. There's no easy answer to this problem necessarily, but certainly I think that there's an opportunity for people to not shy away from having those real discussions not only with their own medical team, but with the, the adjuster. Hey, adjuster, by the way, you seeing on the news what I'm seeing? Like, there's long wait times. I'm not going to see a psychiatrist for another six or seven months. That's just the reality of the situation. And I'm doing the best that I can in the circumstances in the meantime. So look, you need to release the benefit. I'm not better. This is why. And let's not make this an appropriate treatment issue, basically, long story short. But, you know, if it ends up happening that the only treatment someone can access is one that's being offered by the disability insurer, John, then that should be primary, right? I don't want people to hear from us. You know, regularly we will say, we prefer that you see someone that's being set up or recommended or referred by your own doctor and your own team. That's always preferred. Uh, But of course, that comes with a cost. You've got to pay for some of those costs potentially to access those treatments. On the other side of the coin is you take the the insurance company up on their offer of offering you some rehabilitation and they will likely pay for that or the majority of that. But the thing is, they will they will actually draw down on your extended health care plan in order to pay for it. So so it's it's, you know, there are things that they're doing that you don't realize that they're doing. So in other words, let me explain it this way. Yeah. If you've got an extended health care plan that has coverage for dental, you know, drugs, physiotherapy, you know, psychotherapy, this kind of thing, you might have sort of, let's say $500 available under this plan. The insurance company sometimes will actually draw down that $500 before they start paying for that treatment. So they're saying to you they're paying for it, but they're only paying over and above after they've exhausted what you've got available under your own plan. So if that's what's going to happen, you might as well choose the treatment provider yourself anyway, right? And then you've at least got some arm's length between yourself and the insurance company and the treatment provider so that when it comes down to making an opinion or giving an opinion to the insurance company about whether or not you can work, you know that that individual or that treatment provider is wholly in your corner as opposed to being sort of paid for and facilitated by the insurance company. Well, like Tamar said, it may not be an easy thing to tackle, but it is manageable. You just got to have the uh, the right people in your corner, right? So we always tell you to, to reach out on your own time for a more of a private, lengthy conversation with Tamar and her team. To do that, the number, before we get into a break here, one eight five five eight. 
800-821-5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. Reach out anytime. Again, help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address you can use anytime. And we're going to right after a short break and into some emails and some more questions. We continue right here with the Disability Law Show. Stand by. All right, back at it. Disability Law Show. Lots of important things and emails always to get through over the course of an hour. And we always ask you or at least tell you that anytime you can reach out to Tamara Gopian and her team here at uh, Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. You can check that out. Uh, helping people uh, really right across the country dealing with disability insurers outside of Quebec. So feel free to reach out at one 821 5900 Email we use is help at disabilityrights.ca. Geraldine, you're up next. Thank you so much for, for chiming in and joining the show. Geraldine says, Tamara, I, uh, I have a, I've had a depression and anxiety for most of my adult life, but it got much worse a few years ago. I started having panic attacks and often, and I went off work. I've been off work for about a year and a half now. While I'm not having panic attacks as frequently, I still have them, especially when I think about work or try to take on too much. My insurer wants to send me for an independent medical assessment, an IME. I am reaching out to you to see if I have any options with the insurance company's request for that assessment. If I do have to go, how do I make sure that their doctor is fairly assessing my situation? That's got to be the number one question you get from people who are faced going to one of these IMEs, right? How do I know it's Absolutely. on the up and up? Yeah. And and you don't really, I mean, right? Like I think that's the the, the difficult part of contending with it. But yeah. there are absolutely things that you can do in preparation for it and during the assessment and after the assessment that are critical to essentially supporting what will otherwise potentially be an opinion out there saying that you are capable of working, Geraldine. So look, most disability policies say that if the insurance company wants you assessed, they are going to be allowed to have that assessment happen in accordance with that disability policy. The policy is contractual. It says you must. And so otherwise you're risking the fact that the insurer will just simply cut off the benefit because you're not being compliant with something that they have chosen that they wish to do or exercise as a right that they have under this disability policy. So everything gets sort of tied to that benefit, unfortunately. The thing is, though, these independent medical assessments they the insurance company does have a lot of obligations to you Geraldine about giving you some transparency about what is going to happen so they have to tell you who is the uh, individual who's going to assess you what specialty it is they have to tell you where and when it's going to occur is it virtual is it in person most of them are usually in person how long it's going to take um, you know all of those things have to be set up and I have to be set up well in advance of the actual assessment taking place. So they can't call you today and tell you tomorrow you're going to an IME. It doesn't work that way. It has to be reasonable in terms of all of the things uh, that have to be put in place and the time that it takes to organize yourself in order to attend. The other thing that's important is that they won't necessarily tell your doctor. So that really does fall on you, Geraldine, to engage your own doctor. Various practitioners, I'm not sure who is in her care, could be perhaps a psychotherapist or some other counselor, given that she's got mental health conditions. And so you want to let them know, hey, by the way, I'm going through this assessment. This is the individual that's doing it. I just want to put it on your radar because I also want you guys to help me get a copy of the report. So as I was saying at the, in our, at the top of our show, there will be a report generated after this medical assessment is done. And some insurers will say, well, we're not at liberty to give you a copy, Geraldine, so we're not going to give it to you. But, you know, we might send a copy to your doctor. Get a copy. <laughs> you want to see what it says at the end. 
because the independent medical assessor will be asked very specific questions to answer through that assessment and to give the insurance company basically a, a screen capture of what's happening with you with your diagnosis and your prognosis and specifically whether or not you're capable, capable of returning back to work. The report will also comment on treatment. And so it might say, look, in our view, you could either adjust these certain medications or perhaps access these other treatments. Um, and that could also be really helpful because you can then have a further dialogue with your own medical team about what they think about the treatment recommendations that the IME doctor made. But in terms of things that Geraldine can do herself beyond just, you know, letting her medical team know that this is happening, she should also be taking record, John, of how long the assessment took but specifically how long the medical expert was there with her. So not all the paperwork that you're signing before, not all the like stuff at the end, talking about the exact amount of time that the actual doctor or medical practitioner who was doing the assessment was with her, what was asked, how long did that assessment take, and were there things that were said that were not then part of the report. So if Geraldine can then after the assessment make her own notes about it, and then she can compare and contrast with what was actually included in the report. And if there are errors or mistakes, then she should be putting in an email to the adjuster saying, hey, by the way, your assessor missed this. I already explained this to him or her, and this was not included in the report. This sort of thing, especially when we're talking about mental health claims, John, because they are so individual, the symptoms and conditions around depression and anxiety in particular can be really, really difficult not only to diagnose but to treat. And so in my mind, it's an opportunity to allow Geraldine to sort of protect herself from what inevitably may happen on the outside of an IME like this, which is that it you know, gives the insurance company some ammunition to bring the, the claim to an end. And I don't want to see that happen. And so if they're doing it on improper assumptions, improper bases, if the assessment was not fair and transparent as it should have been, then this is a great opportunity and great breeding ground for a lawyer like me to be all over it and challenge the disability insurer for more benefits on her behalf. So that process can be really, really important. How long the assessment took and then how she felt afterwards is also really important. Yeah. I think what's difficult about mental health claims, John in particular, and I, I get this comment a lot from clients and other people I speak with, is that they really don't want to have to tell the story all over again, right? For point. them yeah. to have to go through all the whole, you know, history of their mental health with yet another practitioner, yet another individual who's new can be really, really difficult. And I wish there was an easy answer for me to say to Geraldine, you don't have to attend. That is not the easy answer, unfortunately, that I can give her, but I'm hoping that some of these other tools that I've offered are going to try and allow her to have a little bit of that protection. For example, she could also, you know, try and bring someone with her. If she needs someone, a support person with her, just ask the insurance company. It's very reasonable, nothing out of the ordinary. And it also creates yet another witness or somebody else who's there, who's going to see what's happening through that whole process. So Look, you know, I think it can be a biased process, inherently biased, and it's difficult to deal with. But at the end of the day, what I don't want to see happen is the insurance company saying, we're cutting you off because you didn't attend. 
Sometimes it is a, I guess you refer to it as a paper assessment where it's, it, may, it may be no physical hands-on sort of thing, but a paper assessment. I don't see ever how that holds any water whatsoever, especially if you're not in person. And with mental health in, in Geraldine's case, I mean, it, you know, we, we often say in the show, these things generally don't show up on an x-ray or a CT scan. So there's always, there's always debate with the insurance company, whether it can be, you know, for lack of a better term, legit. And I think that that can also be something that can cause somebody a lot of stress that you can help with. Yeah. Absolutely. So when we were talking about this toolkit that adjusters have, one of the ways that they access medical advice is to actually send your file for a paper review, exactly what you described, John. And so what they have is a series of doctors that they pay that will just get a paper file and their job simply is to review the paper paper file and to give an opinion to the insurance company about whether or not someone is disabled. And Courts have said consistently that that paper review and the insurance company's reliance on that paper review over anything else that might be in the file, including Geraldine's own doctor's comments, for example, that she's still disabled by way of her mental health conditions, trumps. It's it's not proper for the insurance company to do that. They're actually supposed to defer to your own medical team because they actually see you, they talk to you, they treat you. And they've known you for a long time. And you're right, with mental health conditions, those features are very important, very important. And you're not going to get any of that from a paper review, which is probably why the insurance company is thinking about doing an IME for Geraldine, because it lends further credibility, I suppose, to the process of them evaluating Geraldine. By the same token, I think it might also be a good opportunity for her to talk to her doctor or therapist to generate a report. Why not do that now? Get ahead of it. You know, if there is no updated information that the insurance company, you know, needs to continue to pay your disability benefits, then by all means, you know, spoon feed that stuff to them, right? Like I say that a lot because I think that it can be a little bit robotic from the adjuster's perspective as to what they need to do to continue to release those benefits. And so one of those things, robotic in the sense, by the way, John, as in their box checkers, like they, oh, do I have a report? How, you know, have I had one in three months? Okay, I'm going to go ask for another report or another medical note. And so if that's the process, I would encourage Geraldine to have a discussion with her own team. Let's say it's her family doctor and say, look, family doctor, can you just provide, you know, a couple of paragraphs detailing where I'm at from a health perspective, really validating what she's describing as ongoing panic attacks, not as frequent, but still disabling and what's happening in between those panic attacks. In other words, how else is she struggling with depression and anxiety on a day-to-day basis? And it's interesting, John, having that written out by the doctor is very helpful in this context, in a a mental health disability context, because, you know, if the insurance company ignores it, that's a problem for them. If they accept it, but still want to do their own vetting, that's still a problem for them, right? Because the courts have said, we're going to favor your own doctors over anything else, especially if the insurance company chooses to do a paper review, because they're not talking to you and they're not talking to your medical team. So the conclusions that they draw from that are never favorable to the disability insurer. But of course, Geraldine wouldn't necessarily know that unless she was you know, listening to the show or giving us a call, which of course is absolutely free. Let me uh, let me ask you this, Tamar. Is there any any downside to asking the insurance company to try to go back on a gradual work basis, even if you know it's 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 not really something I guess that you should be doing, or if it doesn't work, and and just show that you've tried? I mean, how's that going to be uh, viewed by the uh, by the insurance company? 
Yeah, I, I don't love this scenario, John. The <laughs> idea that you kind of want to prove to the insurance company that you can't actually work. You know, I'm always very hesitant to sort of suggest to anyone that that's going to be something that's favorable because, you know, it, it's, it has a sense of being manufactured. And even if it is manufactured, the insurance company is going to see this as an opportunity to cut off your claim. And it can be that much harder to get back on claim on a recurrence basis. You need that much more medical information, very granular about how did the return to work go? What was happening day to day with symptoms? You know, why could you have not continued the gradual return if it was gradual? Um, you know, I, I have seen a lot of uh, disability claims lately where the doctor said, hey, let's just give it a try. And, uh, and a person is following their medical advice and good on them to do that. And it's not successful. And after a couple of days, a couple of weeks, you know, it all falls apart and they're right back to square one. And the insurance company is saying, well, look, you know, you, you, you gave it a go. Why couldn't you have continued? So I think that I would only really want to attempt a return to work if I'm a claimant, if I've got full endorsement from my doctor that it's it's something that I should try and a reasonable likelihood that it will be successful because you're basically trying to fast forward or short circuit something that's already in the process of, which is the insurance company evaluating the right time for your return to work. And I would much prefer to see a claimant in the driver's seat on making that decision and making that decision with the people who actually support them, as opposed to buckling the, from the pressure of the insurer or trying to prove something to the insurance company, which is, I know this isn't gonna work, so here you go insurance company, it didn't work. Like they they know that, John. And so, you know, if they're aware of that kind of a dynamic, um, they're going to be that much more intransigent in terms of actually getting you to be back on claim and be approved and, and have the benefits paid. At the end of the day, what they really want to see is the closure of your claim and the idea of trying to go back to work sooner than you should um, you know, is feeding right into their hands of what they want to do, which is to stop paying you the benefit. So I don't like the idea of giving it a try unless there is really a reasonable chance of success and a good medical basis to make that attempt. With that, we'll take a break, get to some more me uh, emails on the other side. Do you want to send one along for the remainder of the show or any time it'll get answered, not just for this hour of radio, of course. Help at disabilityrights.ca and reach out to Tamar and her team by phone, one 821 5900 And for short, concise, easy-to-read, non-lawyer-speak notations and uh, information on all things having to do with disability and disability claims, ltdfaq.ca. It's exactly what it sounds like, ltdfaq. Uh, .ca. You can go there freely and anonymously as well. We'll continue more of the Disability Law Show coming up. Alrighty, welcome back. Disability Law Show. If you're joining us for the entire hour, thank you so much for tuning in again this week. If you have not written this down already, and that is the way to reach out to Tamar and her team at the firm. If it's just a simple chat, it'll cost you nothing to pick up a phone and say, Tamar, what about this? And uh, you'll get some information right off the top. You can do so. one 821 5900 the toll-free number, easy to use. Same goes for email help at disabilityrights.ca and another place for you to ask questions a wonderful form it's a website called mydisabilityquestions.com you can simply anonymously type your questions in there and get them answered rather quickly mydisabilityquestions.com but i want to slide over to another email tomorrow this one from uh walter says hey tomorrow love the show uh i've been a welder for the last 35 years i've been off work since 2020 with back issues 
My family doctor sent me to an orthopedic surgeon doctor who says my only option for treatment is spinal fusion, but he also told me there's no guarantee it will improve things, and even if it does, I likely won't be able to return to work. I can't do much of anything because I have to keep changing my position every 10 minutes, and then I have to lie down for two to three hours at least twice a day just to make it through. But my claims manager is now saying my benefits are getting cut off in November because I can do other jobs. I'm 58 years old, and I didn't finish high school. Even if I could sit for long enough to do something, I'd have no idea what to do. Are they allowed to do this, says Walter. Well, that's not nice. Walter, what a tough situation, but but common. Really, really common, John, this idea that there are physical disabilities. Someone who has worked in the same line of work for a long time late 50s, right? And the insurance company saying, you know what, we don't want to pay you to your 65, Walter, because we know, <laughs> we know what you know, which is, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to do an alternative job. But, you know, our policy says at the two year mark, we can actually change the definition of how, what you need to qualify for benefits. And that change is very significant. Because what happens is no longer is the insurance company looking at whether or not Walter can go back and work as a welder. That's no longer the criteria for releasing that LTD benefit month over month. Now what they're looking at is, is there something else Walter could do, even with his limited education, but clearly extensive you know, work background, that will essentially pay him what they're paying him as an LTD benefit, John? And if they think that they can comfortably make that decision, they're absolutely going to make that decision. Now, it's not clear to me how it is that the insurance company concluded that there was other jobs that he could do. And I'm very interested to hear what jobs they've actually identified, John, for Walter. Because again, the onus is on the disability insurer to do that analysis. The legal onus is on them to actually identify other jobs that can be done that come within this education, training, and experience uh, qualifier of the test. And it has to make sense with the restrictions and limitations that exist with Walter. And what he describes for us is that, look, I I can't sit you know, for, or, or be in the same position for more than 10 minutes. I need to lie down for several hours a day. You know, it's harder for me to make it through, you know, fairly routine things, let alone take on a whole job that I'd have to learn and do something totally different. Now, the learning and totally different part, that one is an interesting part, John, because I generally find that when individuals have had a relatively physical type job like Walter has had as a welder, The fallback position for insurance companies inevitably is, look, you could do an office job and just answer some phones. But that's why the education, training, and experience analysis becomes so important because I don't see how that connection can be made, right? Where Walter, given the age he's at, given his profile, is going to be applying for a job like this with, with truly no background in doing a job like this. It's really unclear to me whether he has even the minimum requirements to get a job like this, but the insurance company is required to do this analysis, and usually they do it in what's called a transferable skills analysis, a TSA. And these TSAs are riddled with problems all the time because they gloss over some assumptions in order to get to a conclusion that someone can actually do these three or four other jobs that they've identified. And it's the glossing over part that I'm all over. I know, you know, most of my team are, are always looking at the TSA because there's always problems in it. And what I'm trying to get my head around is what restrictions and limitations have been identified in this TSA? 
or even in the analysis that the insurance company has done generally, have they put in there that he needs to change positions every 10 minutes? Because I can assure you that even in an office quote unquote setting or where you're answering some phones, even in a call center setting, that's not going to be a limitation that's going to line up with you being able to sustainably do a job like that. Those types of roles have very specific timeframes in which you can take breaks and not take breaks. You need to be online for certain periods of time. You don't have that kind of flexibility that clearly Walter needs in order to put him in a job like that. So the details are very important in these kinds of these kinds of analyses. And if the insurance company has made the wrong assumptions or has leapt to certain conclusions that are not sustainable in this kind of analysis, well, then Walter, we should be starting a legal claim. I mean, it's a no, never mind kind of situation in my mind that if your doctors are still supporting that you've got ongoing health issues that are preventing you from working in any setting, really, which it certainly sounds is the case, then the insurance company should be paying the benefits. They should be on an ongoing basis. And any suggestion of a decline at this stage is just not going to be you know, sustainable. And the insurance companies know it, right, John? This is the other yeah. thing. They know right? That they're not going to stand before a judge and argue that Walter can actually do another job. No, they're not going to do that. They're going to see the legal claim that I've brought and they're going to have a conversation with me probably within months to try and resolve this thing because, you know, they know that they're not in a good footing. And don't forget, the legal onus is on them. So they have to prove and demonstrate that the, well, that their analysis was correct and that it was reasonable, Right. And from what Walter's describing, it just doesn't seem like any of those features are going to be something that's going to make sense in this context. With that, let's take a, a short break before we get into more questions and answers for the uh, remaining minutes of the show. But outside the hour, of course, I, I keep telling you, you can always reach out to Tamar and her team or somebody at the firm and uh, and get some answers. No problem. one 821 5900 Email address help at disabilityrights.ca. And if you go to disabilityrights.ca, that'll land you on the firm website. There's a Knowledge Center tab at the uh, top, drop-down menu from there, Media. You'll be able to listen to past uh, radio shows and catch our TV show as well. Again, at uh, employment or pardon me, uh, disabilityrights.ca. That website will take you, take you right there. We'll continue with more of the disability law show. Hang on, welcome back, disability law show. Love doing it every week. My pal Tamara Gopian is here. Partners Samfiru Tamarkin LLP. Always eager to answer your questions. Off air as well. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We're talking about poor Walter, uh, you know, just before the break. 35 years as a welder, that's really, he's probably amazing at it, but he really had no other education. So looking at other jobs, well, he can't because he's, you know, severely disabled is not likely. But on the other side of that, Tamar, is the insurance company obligated to pay for retraining or treatment before cutting off benefits? What do you think about that? It's a good question. And unfortunately, the short answer is no, not no. necessarily. So, Look, some policies will have a provision in it that says, you know, we can offer you a certain amount of money to go towards retraining. Uh, very few, though, John, have that kind of language. And generally speaking, the interesting part is, is that I consistently hear from people that they just assumed that that was going to be part of the process. So like, okay, insurance company, you're telling me now that I'm able to go and do these other jobs, but I need some short-term training in order to do these other jobs. Let's say in a scenario like Walter, I suspect he probably needs some kind of computer training, John, like some yeah. basic, you know, like I, I just I don't see uh, necessarily a profile like his, you know, being sufficient in terms of background to be putting him in a setting that I suspect the insurance company wants to put him in. But they're not required to offer it. 
And so people are always looking at me like, hey, wait a minute. They cut off my benefits. They said I could do these other jobs. They said I would need short-term training to do these other jobs, but they're not going to pay for the training. How does that make any sense? It doesn't, folks. It doesn't make any sense. But the policy, if it doesn't require them to do it, they're not going to do it because it's going to cost them money, John. And yep. so they're you know, going to take the position that, look, you can go ahead and get this training yourself or you can access it yourself. And within you know a few months, you should be good to go and apply for these other jobs and go ahead. You'll be fine. And that they make it all about an employment issue as opposed to making it a disability issue. It, it helps the insurance company actually bring claims to an end because it allows them to gloss over the health part. And we can't forget the health part. <laughs> That's the starting point insurance company. That's right. Um, and so, you know, this is what makes this analysis so interesting for at least a disability nerd like me uh, because, you know, I like how it changes that lens and then I keep them honest, John, and I say, hey, wait a minute, but hang on. We're still talking about someone who's got ongoing restrictions and limitations. We're still talking about someone who done the same job for 35 years, let's say, or for a long, long time. You're leaping to conclusions without giving an individual the supports that they need in order to facilitate them actually getting back, let alone what's happening from a health perspective. So, you know, think about a scenario where someone is recovering from a mental health condition and perhaps that they were approved and paid for the full own occupation period. It's rare, but let's say it, it actually has happened. And, you know, the insurance company says, we're not going to continue paying benefits. And we think that you could do some other occupation, maybe not the stressful job you were doing when you first went off, and you're good to go. The thing is, though, with mental health conditions, John, inevitably, it is a relapsing and remitting type of condition. In other words, you can be in a period of recovery and then find yourself back to the same starting point a year, two, three down the road. And so the analysis the insurance company is doing doesn't actually hold a lot of water. Just because you're going from one work setting to another, it doesn't mean that those mental health conditions are not still persisting and are still not going to be a barrier for you for actually working. So the any occupation analysis that disability insurers do in the context of a mental health claim is littered with challenges that we can make. And it's not necessarily just the fact that they haven't retrained someone. It has more to do with the fact that they are glossing over what's inherently a claim that could potentially have ups and downs and, and you know, back on claim, off claim again. Uh, and so I don't ever, I don't really like that kind of scenario for disability insurers, but it's great for me and my clients because it allows me to gain that leverage to start the legal claim and then within months get a resolution for my clients when they've had resistance from the disability insurer from the get-go. You know, if, if we look at that kind of back at Walter's email, they're a guy who's a, who's a welder for 35 years, and it's like, okay, you got to you know go back and retrain, plop the guy in front of a computer. He might right. be able to, at his age, with his skill set, learn some sort of skill uh, to sit at a desk, but how about the factor, I mean, you can almost guarantee, you can't guarantee, but you can almost guarantee that Walter, after 35 years of being a welder, that guy's, he's probably made some serious coin. He's probably doing well, if not owning his own business. So how does the commensurate income thing factor into a guy like Walter? There's no way he's going to get a desk job, a computer job, with his lack of education at his age. That's going to come close to what he made, I would assume, as a welder for 35 years. He's probably done very well. Look, you make a really, really good point, John. And I think that for those who are not familiar with the analysis, we talked about, you know, TSA, the transferable skills, but the commensurate wage is also something that's super important. I sort of mentioned it, but let's talk about it a little more. 
what the insurer is going to use as the benchmark for alternative earnings for another job is not the 100% amazing salary you were making at your regular work, uh, including Walter. You know, yeah, he's probably making a lot of coin as, as, a, as a welder, fine. But it's no longer putting him back at that income level. What the insurance company is going to look at is either the LTD benefit as the guiding point. So in other words, two thirds of what you're making, you know, 66.67% or some policies define gainful occupation or alternative gainful occupation at 60% of what you're earning or 50% of what you're earning. That's a lot less than being at the 100% level, which is what they're looking at during the own occupation period. So Again, you want to be mindful of that analysis and recognize that this is why the policies are stacked against people, right? The insurance companies know this. They know that when they negotiate the terms and conditions of these policies, it's going to allow them to bring otherwise legitimate claims to an end because the threshold for alternative earnings is low, right? So even if you were making a really good income before your disability claim, after those two years, the insurance company can use a much reduced level, and sometimes it's even less than the LTD benefit. So how does this factor into the analysis? I think that if you're in a situation like this, certainly if you're around that two-year mark, you really should be considering beyond just the disability benefits, what other income sources you can access. The one that we talk about the most is CPP disability, a government-sponsored disability plan that pays out on a monthly basis, usually on average around $1,000 up to about $1,450. And it is something you can access if you've got a severe and prolonged disability. So, you know, people like Walter, that's the kind of stuff that you should be thinking about. And if the insurance company is going to, you know, make the hasty decision of cutting you off, at least you can try and rely on some of these government supports as opposed to putting yourself back into a work setting that's not going to be successful and not in line with your own health and what your doctors are recommending, which clearly is that you stay off work and pursue benefits. We always cover so much on this hour, but there's always so much more to talk about. We'll do it on our next show. But in the meantime, you can get your own information, do your own due diligence. And how do you do that? You reach out to Tamar and her team. They're always willing to have a, a simple chat with you right off the top. one 821 would be the phone number, the email address we always use. And thank you for uh, for contributing to the show again today. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, they can be asked at mydisabilityquestions.com. How about that? And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.